0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acob, and today I'm joined by Stephen Pressfield. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. Stephen Pressfield is the best-selling author of fiction and nonfiction. He wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance, Gates of Fire, Tides of War, A Man at Arms, as well as the classics on creativity, The War of Art, Turning Pro, and Do the Work. His Wednesday column on www.stephenpressfield.com is among the most popular writing blogs online, and he's one of my heroes. But bottom line, one of my heroes. I've given away his book, The War of Art, more than any other book in my entire life other than my own. I'm very generous with my own books. I keep my own books. I have one with me usually anytime I'm at an airport. um, And if somebody comes up, I'm like, oh, here's, here's the latest copy of Soundtrack. So I give my own books around a lot. But The War of Art allowed me to finish my first book. If you are a creative artist at any point, Really, bigger than that. If you are someone who ever feels what he calls resistance to do something good, it can be lose some weight. It can be get your finances in order. It can be, you know, declutter an addict. I love the war of art. You've heard me, if you've listened to this podcast, talk about the war of art thousands of times, like a crazy amount of times. And what's cool, and I get to tell this story um, in this episode is that when I was first writing my first nonfiction book, I wrote this book called Quitter a few years ago. I asked Stephen Pressfield if he would endorse it, and I wrote him an email, and he wrote me back the kindest email ever. It was so encouraging. I have it printed out on my wall right here. Like, I'm pointing at it. You can't see. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see me pointing, but if you're listening to it on iTunes, just know in your heart I am pointing. And it was a world-changing, game-changing email for me, and I get to thank him for that. So it's a really special episode for me. I think you're going to love it. He says some amazing things, he tells some amazing stories. We're going to jump into that, but first, a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. When my book soundtracks came out, one reaction really surprised me. Parents across the country started asking me, "Do you have a version for teenagers?" They say, you know, John, if I could have changed my mindset at that age, my entire life would have been different. Why did they say that? Because when it comes to the life you want, mindset is everything. When you're young, your entire world is made of new. You're a movie that's barely started, a notebook with blank pages in it, a song that hasn't hit the chorus yet. You have your whole life ahead of you. The crazy thing is your future life is directly impacted by your mindset. Positive or negative, your thoughts matter. They can work for you or against you. In fact, a single repetitive thought believed when you're a teen can change the course of your entire life. The good news is, you get a choice when it comes to those internal soundtracks. That's why I wrote my newest book, Your New Playlist with my two teenage daughters. It's written for teenagers by teenagers to help them create new thoughts that will turn into new actions and lead to new results. Help your team design a playlist and tap into the superpower mindset by pre-ordering a copy of Your New Playlist wherever you like to buy books. Or you can even read the first two chapters for free at akaf.me playlist. All right, let's jump into my interview with Steven Pressfield. Steve, this is going to be a ton of fun because The War of Art is on my Mount Rushmore of nonfiction books. I've given that book away more than any other book other than my own. And we've emailed for a decade and, and con- connected that way, but we've never spoken before. And we've, we've never been in the same event. And so I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Ah, Thanks for having me, John. It's great to be here with you after all this time. Yeah,
0: it, it's going to be a blast. So I'm, I'm curious, the War of Art represented a bit of a departure for you from what you've been doing, screenplays, fiction. What was the, that was a big kind of chasm to jump over to say, okay, now I'm going to switch from kind of behind the camera to in front of it. I'm going to give some advice. What made you want to make that switch?
1: Well, um you know, when you're a working writer, your friends come to you and they say, I've got a book in me. I want to write a novel. I want to write my grandmother's biography, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. So I wound up in in real life spending evenings with people, sometimes till like two in the morning, Mm -hmm. just trying to psych them up, you know, and to go ahead and do it. And of course they were Reeling under their own resistance with a capital R, right? They had a million excuses why they couldn't do it. So I would. So the short version is after doing about 10 of these evenings where nobody ever listened to me and nobody ever did anything, you know, nobody ever wrote their book, I just said, why don't I just write this down? Because I'm tired of doing this in person. And then when mm-hmm. somebody asks me, I'll just say, here, read this. So I had like, you know, two or three months of time and I just, you know, threw it together came out really, really fast, mm-hmm. and that that was, that was how it came about.
0: So it was, but it, I would say it was lived long, but written quickly. So it was yes, exactly. X amount of decades of time, and then just waiting for that moment to go, okay, I'm going commit, to um, commit these ideas. Right, to, I had already sort it. of done
1: it verbally so many times that, you know, all I had to do was sit down and type it out.
0: I love that sense of you're giving advice and they're not taking it because I always describe that as feeling like throwing a tennis ball against the wall. I can tell when somebody's not going to do anything I'm recommending, even as I'm recommending it. And they both know.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so
1: it's It's like one of the most thankless things in the world. I I hate to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is why I think books are the best way to do it rather than in person. You might disagree, John, but But I can tell too, I see that glazed look in people's eyes and, you know, the look of fear, then I just know they're never going to do it. And it's, it's crazy that the people who are going to do it, they don't need you to tell them they're going to do it on their own. Right. Yeah. And, but you, you, you hope, you know, the one in a hundred that will respond to the message. And, um, I must say, I've gotten a lot of emails and letters over the years of people who say, you know. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I finally wrote my book or whatever because of your stuff. So
0: it's rewarding in the end, as as you know. Well, and it's a pass on book. My friend Jarrett Stevens passed it on to me when I was stuck on my first book. I was writing somebody else's book, using somebody else's voice of what I thought was a real author. This is how real authors write. And my wife would read it uh-huh. and go, this is, I don't know whose book this is. The question she asks me now when she reads a <laughs> manuscript is, do you want feedback or compliments? And she says, do you want uh, feedback or compliments? And sometimes I yeah. want the compliments, but I think the book's a real pass on to other people. I love the new book. Um, one of the things that I liked is you said, tremendous power lies in the simple physical act of stationing our body at the epicenter of our dream. How does somebody begin to station themselves at the epicenter of their dream?
1: Well, this, this is, this is the book here. I know, I don't know if you got this cause I had to send you a PDF. It's called, yep. you know, put your ass where your heart wants to be. And a lot of times someone will say to me, well, how do I write a book? Mm-hmm. You know, well, how do I start? And I just say, you know what, sit down in front of one of these, Yeah. you know, put your ass in the chair mm-hmm. like right where I am right now and just say to yourself, I'm not getting up for the next four hours. Mm-hmm. And that's how you do it. And then do it that day, to today, tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. And that's how you do it. There really is magic, as you know, John, to just like you know if you want to paint, get up in front of an easel. If you want to dance, get into the studio. if you want to if you want to be physically fit, put your ass in the gym or out on the track or whatever there's, it sounds so dumb. It's like, I know you've said that too. You have ideas that are like so simple. You think, you know, am I really, mm-hmm. should I really even say this It's so obvious, but it is obvious and it is true. And there is magic to it. Put your ass in the chair and don't get up until
0: you've, you know, for another four hours and magically well, and, you'll have something. Yeah. And you definitely have something you didn't have at the start of the four hours. And if you stack those four hours on another four hours, Do you think that people sometimes disregard things as common sense, even though they're not doing them like, Oh, okay. That's common sense. Everybody knows that, but they're not doing it. So it's not common sense. It's the most amazing thing you've ever heard if you're not doing it.
1: Yeah. I mean the, the whole, the biggest thing of course is action rather than words or thinking about something. Right. So common sense sort of equates to action. You know, you want to lose weight Stop eating so much, you know, or make a plan, a positive plan of how you're going to, you know, alter your diet and then do it. And it is common sense, but we're leaving out that concept uh, in the war of art of resistance with a capital R Mm -hmm. that, that self-sabotage that we all face, you know, yeah, it's common sense, but we can't make ourselves do it. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you think there's more resistance now culturally than there was when you wrote the book or when authors were writing books in the 40s or the 50s? Or is it the same kind Uh, of prehistoric uh, force and it's always the same?
1: I think it's a prehistoric force that's always been the same. But today with social media and all those things, there are just so many distractions that uh, it's even easier to get off the track and not do the work that we know we have to do.
0: To that point, what are the distractions that you say no to? So if somebody said, okay, I was able to see Steve Pressfield's life and I was surprised he didn't blank. He doesn't engage in blank. What are the things that you've deliberately said, okay, in order to have a wall between me and resistance, I need to build this type of wall?
1: Um, I had um, years ago, I had a couple of years after running away from writing for a long time and really yielding to resistance, I, I saved up some money and I had a couple of years where I just moved to this little house in Northern California and all I did all day was, was write. and, And at night, all I did was read and I didn't have a TV. I didn't have a stereo. This was before the internet, before social media. So I didn't have to worry about that. And I think that in that period, it's, I wish everybody could have a period like that, you know, when you're, you have nothing to worry about but your own obsession, you know. And I really felt like uh, I just had walls in front of me and on both sides and nothing got in through those walls. And so I, because I was so desperate to finish this book, you know, to finish something for the first time in my life instead of crapping out and running away from it. So I've really just tried and since then to kind of duplicate that as best I can. So, uh, in a way I'm lucky that I sort of came of age before the social media world. So I never got addicted to that stuff. It's not, it's not hard at all for me. I don't even know what Facebook is yeah. or, you know, I, I, I log on to Instagram, but not for very long. I'm not really that I'm not hooked on that sort of stuff. And, and I'm also enough of an introvert that if I get invited to social events like parties or something like that, I really, I really don't want to go. I'd rather, Mm -hmm. you know, stay home and work on what I'm working on. So maybe I'm just sort of temperamentally more suited to sort of be a being a writer alone in a room. That's fine with me. Uh, You know, that,
0: that's really where I want to be. Would you say your obsession with an idea when you're working on a book Grows over time. Like, is it a curiosity at one point, but then you start to get some momentum. You start to meet the characters, whether that's nonfiction characters or fiction characters, and you start to want to spend more time with them. And then you start to see them at the grocery store. And then this, you know, the clock kind of gets bigger.
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely true. I'm sure it's true in in your experience too, John. Uh, You know, you you start with the sort of at the superficial level, right? with a story, a novel or something like that, right? And you sort of know it starts here, it goes there, it finishes there. The hero is this, the villain is that, da-da-da-da. But as you get into it, weeks and months and months – the characters start developing deeper dimensions, you know, it's like watching game of Thrones, right? The first time you see, you know, Denise or Daenerys Targaryen, you just see her as just a little blonde, you know, but as you see over and over and over, she gets deeper, deeper quality. So yeah, definitely. let me ask you, John, do you find the same thing when you're working on a book? Does it start off, you know, at a, at a sort of a surface level and then get deeper and deeper?
0: Yeah. And I, it's a silly, it's a silly canary in a coal mine, but I can tell I'm into it when I get mad at other things I have to do. So there's other parts uh, of running my great. business that in the afternoon I uh. have to do and I don't want to leave the writing. And I get really, uh. it's a litmus test of I'm furious at this meeting because it's making me leave the flow of this idea and I don't want to leave it. Where uh. at the beginning, it's harder uh. to get into the flow. So I think that's a, that's a, it's a silly kind of, Canary in a coal mine, but that's that's one I see um is that it depends, like if I'm really into it, I don't want to leave it. And that's that's when I know, okay, I might I might have caught the tail of something. Let me hold on to that tail as long as I can. Um uh, for as many uh, days great. as I that's can.
1: Great. One of an analogy that I use sometimes just to myself, is I feel like a book that's in you is like an underground river that's mm-hmm. flowing inside you, you know? And your real life becomes that river at a certain point, Mm -hmm. you know, it becomes more compelling to you than maybe not than your family, but usually then the rest of your life. Right. You know, uh, and you just want to kind of stay by that river and it makes sense because an idea for a book or a movie or anything like that doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes, it comes because something is bubbling beneath the surface right? You're in the, in the unconscious level, you're evolving or you're dealing with some issue or something like that, right? And you, you don't even know what it is, I don't think, you know, until it, until it kind of comes out. And so it does make sense that it's more fun to be with those people, the characters in your book, or with the ideas that you're working with, because that's what that underground river is all about, you know? And that's, to me, is, is your real life, when you're when you're a writer or an artist of any kind
0: or an entrepreneur. And that's where the frustration is. I think you mentioned the phrase hiding or running from that you've been running from a writer. And I think there's people that run from starting their business, run from leading their family. We can run from anything in you know in the face of resistance. And I think that my my wife has said to me before um, writers aren't easy to live with when they're not writing. Um and I think that's yes. that's true. Boy, is <laughs> that true. I'm sure
1: it's also true for like professional, for athletes. How hard is it to be the wife of a, or the husband of a, like I'd say, a WNBA player when she's not playing or a football player when they're not playing. Like the famous classic thing is when an athlete gets injured, like Kobe Bryant, when he had his, you know, Achilles tear or something. And I'm sure that was hell on his family. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, Jordan, I just finished Jordan's biography and it certainly comes across that way. The level of, when he wasn't playing, he had to aggressively be playing poker or aggressively be paying playing golf. Ah, like yeah, yeah. There was yeah. no there was no off switch where he wasn't yeah. able to say, yeah. okay, now now I'm the relaxed Michael Jordan. I don't think there's a casual Michael Jordan <laughs> yeah. that exists. Um yeah. and yeah. It, it happens. One of the things that I really liked about the book um, is you tell this story about one of your friends, Tom Ginsburg, who who wrote you a note. He sent you a note at a time you really needed a note. And that's what's fun for me. Um, 10, 11 years ago, I asked you to endorse my my first kind of what I'd call a real book. I'd written a satire, but now I was going to write some, some nonfiction. And you wrote me back the kindest email and said, whatever else you're doing, stop it and start writing full-time. And you said, you're wasting yourself, baby. And it was, I remember where I was. I was in Crested Butte, Colorado, sitting in an old suburban. I got the email while we were trying to go on a ski trip. And I, it was pivotal. I have it printed out, just like you printed Tom's note, out on my wall for the moments when Resistance says, well, you're not a writer yet. And I go, well, I've written eight books. It feels like that means I'm a writer. And Resistance, <sighs> it'll try any old trick. For you, what did that note from Tom mean? Like, what did that do for you as a, as a, as a creative, as somebody trying to be courageous?
1: Uh, First, I'll tell you, the story of the whole, I'll give you the long story here, which is in the book. Yeah, yeah, I'd love
0: it. I would love it.
1: um, My, my second book was this one here, Gates of Fire. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I submitted the manuscript to my (sighs) agent, it was 800 pages long. It was a monster. Mm -hmm. And my agent said to me, you know, Steve, I can't sell this, you know, it's too long. You're going to have to cut 300 pages. And I thought 300 pages. I mean, there's no, how can I do that? Isn't You know, that's like cutting off both arms. And I was really in despair. I basically gave up. I didn't know what to do. And I got and out of the blue, kind of like my note to you or email to you. I got a handwritten note from a guy named Tom Ginsburg who at that time was the head of Viking Press in New York, which was like one of the great, you know, prestige publishers. And I didn't know him. He didn't know me. He had read the manuscript because he was friends of my agent. And he sent uh, this short handwritten note and it just said, there's a really good book in here, Steve, and I know you can bring it out. And just like you, I pinned it to my, you know, computer. And it was like, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi had appeared, you know, and, and touched me with a lightsaber, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the point that I was making in the new book, put your ass about that story is that once you really commit to something, the universe responds. And that note for me coming from Tom Ginsburg was the universe responding to me as as a as a real writer, I was not a fake writer. I was a real writer. I just was having a crisis of confidence. And the universe responds. And Tom Ginsburg sent me that note. it meant the world to me. So that that's that's the point that I'm trying to make in yeah. uh, put your ass where your heart wants to be.
0: Well, and I, I love that in your work, you talk about moments like that, where the 300 pages is terrifying. That's every author's nightmare, is that you submit something that you think is it's put together, there's a thread, there's, it, there's a line, you've got it packaged, and they go well, just take out half the characters. And you're like, but they all talk to each other. Like they have relationships. Like you can't just like remove 40% of the men. That's not, that's not how the the thing was put. So that, that would, that's terrifying. Um, but I love that you share the stuff like that because often I always say like, Old school leadership was, if I share my weaknesses, people won't trust my strengths. And new school is, if I pretend I don't have weaknesses, people won't trust my strengths. So your books give you moments where you go, hey, this was challenging, and this other person helped me, or this these people pulled me across the finish line, they helped me. There's another story you tell about going to see King Kong. Um, going, you know, you've worked on that as a screenplay. This is one of your big kind of first Hollywood productions. And you go to the theater and you're like, this is, you rent out the theater and it's not the moment you thought it was going to be. Can you share that story with anyone who hasn't read the war of art?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, it was the move, a movie called King Kong lives that I co-wrote with uh, my writing partner. It was one of the all time lamest movies of all time. If you're ever tempted to go see it, don't go see it. Uh But, uh, We, my partner and I, we, you know, the movie was made. We saw it. It wasn't just the script. We saw the finished product, and we thought, ah, this is great. Everybody's going to love." blah, blah, blah. We rented out a theater, the whole thing, and everybody just hated it. I mean, you know, we were just dying a thousand deaths. And then the next day, the review came out in Daily Variety, and it said, uh, it named us, it said, uh, Ronald said, and Steven Pressfield, we hope these are not their real names for their parents' sake. <laughs> and, That's uh, brutal.
0: So, that is brutal. But, uh,
1: and then, you know, uh, to, to, an addendum to the story is that I thought, I thought, well, maybe the movie is just bombing in the city. Maybe if I go, like, to the suburbs, maybe it's doing great, yeah. you know. So I went out to this multiplex in the suburbs, and I just kind of tiptoed in, and there was just the, the kid that was doing something of the popcorn, you know. And I said, you know, how's King Kong lives? He said, miss it, man. It sucks. <laughs> so I was, but the, the point that I make in, in the War of Art about that was that, and this was a friend of mine kind of sat me down. I was like in despair. My friend, Tony Keppelman sat me down. He said, you know, you wanted to be in the arena, right? This is your dream. You wanted to be there. So you're there. You're getting the shit kicked out of you, yeah. but you're there in the arena. You know, you're not in the bleachers looking on. So be grateful for that. And yeah. I, and I looked at it and I thought, you know what, I haven't had a success yet, but I've had a real failure and yeah. that's better than being, you know, out in the parking lot.
0: And that's a real lesson too. That, and that's another, when resistance says, if you fail, you'll die. You go, well, I didn't with King Kong. So, because I, I think that's part of resistance is having an active memory or keeping a list. Where because resistance will say you've never done hard things. If this doesn't work, it's all over. If this and you go whoa, whoa, whoa! No, actually, I've done a lot of hard things. Like I've got a history <laughs> of hard things. I lived through those. Like I'm going to live through this one too. Because I I think that as resistance brings up your inability to do them, having some evidence, like gathering some some truth to have, you know, to push back on is helpful. And I love that you shared that because I think it's, it's an honest story. I think, I think it's an honest story. And with resistance, there's another R R word you talk a lot about, um, in the new book and it's restraint. Um, I love that you said when you're tired, stop. Um, what role do you feel like restraint has in the life of an artist, in the life of an entrepreneur, in the life of, you know, somebody scaling a business or somebody getting in shape? It's not a word we talk about a lot, Because I think we sometimes think you have to work 90 hours a week and get up at 3 a.m. and do burpees. Like, but for you, you've seen the value of restraint. What role does that play?
1: You know, before I respond to that, John, let me go back to the note that I sent to you. And I just want to tell you again that as soon as I read your stuff, I didn't have to read like three sentences. I said, This guy is a writer. This guy has a voice. This guy has a sense of humor. This guy has brains, you know, and I just felt like I, I, again, the I'm the universe in this case, and I'm responding to you. And I just said, I have to encourage John. I don't know him from Adam. I have to encourage him because <laughs> I know resistance is in his head. I know he's recycling oh, yeah. himself out just of like course. everybody else does. So let me just throw a, a fastball right over the plate and tell him how good he is, you know? So I just wanted to say that, repeat that to you. I here.
0: appreciate that. And I, um, I, I've tried to continue that with other authors in my life where I've seen – because I know – resistance is fighting everybody like there's not that somebody has a smaller baby version and somebody has a big version there's yeah, I, there's right, one yeah. prehistoric like it's one size fits all and it'll fit you and so then yes. if you can send, if you can send that note so it was a great model for me i i appreciate you saying that um so but let, let's just let's just dump right back into resistance then so for you- or You want me to talk about restraint for a minute? Yeah, go on restraint. <laughs> that go was the question I, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, like, just, this go- is just fun. This is two artists talking to each other. So we're going to go all over the place. I love that. Okay. Uh,
1: I'll just say one thing about- Quick thing about restraint. Um, John Steinbeck used to say, there's a wonderful book if if uh, called Journal of a Novel. Mm-hmm. If if anybody listening hasn't heard of this by John Steinbeck, I highly recommend it. It's like while he was writing East of Eden, and he already was a very established, successful writer, he just as a sort of a warm up each morning, he had a he had an an open notebook like that, and on the left side of the page, he would kind of write notes to himself, like mm. how the book was going, what he was worried about, what he had for dinner last night, and then on the right side, he'd actually write the book. And one of the things he says in the notes to himself is like always leave something in the well for the next day. And he said that to push yourself beyond the point of fatigue in a day, the phrase he used was, is the falsest form of economy. And I thought that is so true. You know, you think, oh, I'll get another hour in, but then the next day you're so wasted you can't do anything. And if you think about, I remember watching, I have some couple of friends, brothers who live in, in Louisville. And every time I visit them, we go out to Churchill downs and one of them is a part owner and horses, you know, mm-hmm. and if you watch thoroughbreds being trained, the trainers don't work them very hard at all. They go out there, you know, they run around the track a little bit, you know, they rehearse a little bit with the gate and stuff like that, but they don't really drive them into the ground and they're smart. You know, even if you look at a cat, like a house cat, you know, the cat sleeps, you know, ninety <laughs> yeah, yeah, percent. They're very chill. So I think it's it's writing or any entrepreneurial venture is a marathon, not a sprint, right? So you have to pace yourself and don't drive yourself insane. That's so that's that's my theory on restraint.
0: Well, for, yeah, for me, it's, I know when it's getting dumb or I know when I'm taking shortcuts. Like when I end something, I go, and then your life will be great. And I haven't explained anything. I've just summarized <laughs> and I can say, okay, this I'm, I'm out of words for today. I need to do something else. I'm getting lazy with the ideas. Um, but we're, I think restraints hard because we love what we're doing. Like you wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Like you enjoy it and it's a challenge. And I, I think that's, that's part of the, the challenge, um, There is, there's a lot, what's interesting to me about the way you write is that there's a lot of, and maybe spirituality is the wrong word, but there's a lot of the muse, um, that there's a bigger, there's a bigger current happening. Um, You know, I, I wonder your perspective, um, because I'm a Christian. And so my, you know, my connection is, okay, I, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but for you, I think you do a really good job getting people to at least admit that they can't explain where that idea came from. They can't go, I knew exactly where this magic happened from. Why do we as creators, regardless of religious background, why do you think we have a hard time admitting there might be something deeper at play?
1: That's a really good question, John. I mean, I I never had a hard time admitting that. It was very clear to me that the ideas for books and scenes and stuff weren't coming from me. You know, that uh, I put in the work, but that things were coming through me, you know, and that's really sort of, it is spiritual. I mean, I'm definitely a believer, whether you want to be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or whatever, that there's a higher, there's another level above us, you know, a level that we, that we can't see. You could call it heaven. You could call it Mount Olympus. You could call it uh, the unconscious, the super conscious, whatever but that there's another level above us or inside us and that that's the level that, that, uh, that that underground river comes from, you know? So I consider myself in service of that level and I'm just trying to, uh, you know, sometimes I call it in my mind, the cosmic radio station and I'm just trying to tune Tune in
0: Yeah. And you know, when you have, that's the thing, like, you know, when you have, because like the way I say it is my best ideas are received, not forced. I can tell when I forced a thing and I can tell when I felt more received and I got to experience it first. So when like I was, I was watching the idea first and I'm so glad other people got to join it in the Uh form of a book or a speech, but I got to see it first and go, Oh wow, look what look what just showed up. That's amazing. So I I think you can tell as a if you ask the Rolling Stones where did no satisfaction come from? Or where the Beatles, where did this like I think most artists, if they're if they can be honest about it or grapple with it in the way they want to, will say, Well, we are together and then like we created this thing and we it wasn't a formula. If it was a formula, everybody would use the formula. Everybody would be Taylor Swift and sell a million albums. Because in Nashville, where I live, people say, oh, well, you know, like, here's the formula. But it never works. The formula never works.
1: Yeah. Like, uh, I just heard this the other day that Roseanne Cash Mm -hmm. says that if you're a songwriter, you have to travel all the time with a catcher's mitt. (laughs) That's so good. And she says, if I don't catch it, it's going to wind up over at Lucinda Williams' house.
0: That's so good. What would you say is the the latest idea you caught? Like in the last in the last month, in the last week, something you caught that you were like, "Ooh, I get like." And it can be a character development. It can be a book idea. Like, what's something you've caught recently?
1: Um, uh, it's I'm working on a on a book that's a. This was my most recent novel called "A Man at Arms," kind of set in the ancient world, and it's about a particular character that I've had in other books. And I'm working on kind of a, a sequel to this, a follow-up to it. And uh, I just, it just, there was one particular character. If I get into it too deep, yeah. it'd just be boring. But there's one particular character that I sort of knew was kind of superficial, wasn't? And I just had a flash, yeah, that, that took it really deep. And I thought, oh, that's that's a key yeah. that's going to really open this character up.
0: Oh, that's so. And fun. it just, got- it
1: came to me lying in bed. It was one of those things, you know. Where I had but to you get had up set the, the table all day,
0: so you got up and wrote it down yeah. in the middle of the night.
1: Oh, that's yeah. So good, Actually, I took my phone and I went yep. into the bathroom so that I would disturb my girlfriend, and uh, yep. you know, dictated it into the phone.
0: And it was still good the next. I morning. I knew I would forget it if I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a short appointment, a very short. There was a short window, yeah, yeah. short window to catch yeah. to catch that one. That's that catcher's mitt. Yeah, oh, that's so good. One of the ideas you talk about in the new book um, is this concept of self-reinforcement. You say for writers and artists, the ability to self-reinforce is more important than talent, which I thought was really interesting because often we, we kind of you know, make talent a god. We make – like you have like some people have it, some people don't. Can you explain what self-reinforcement is in your, in your definition and how we, whether we're artists or entrepreneurs or want to lose weight, any goal we have, can, can use self-reinforcement?
1: okay it's uh i mean we're all playing the long game right i mean we're in it for the rest of our lives right so a question becomes how do you stay in it how do you keep from burning out right if you're an athlete if you're a runner if you're an entrepreneur if you're a writer if you're an artist whatever and th- i think that the way that you keep from burning out is being able to sort of self refresh self reinforce Keep, you know, because like if 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 you and I were training for a marathon mm-hmm. and we had a coach and that coach would, you know, lay out our daily schedule for us, you know, give us our, our diet for the week, you know, and when we went out there on the track or we did our nine mile run or something, the coach would be with us and encouraging us and come back in and, you know, that would be reinforcement, but it's not self-reinforcement you know and like probably for you and me John there's nobody you know maybe a spouse but not really there's nobody really being that mentor that coach that that teacher so we have to do it ourselves and it's not, it's kind of in action it's kind of dumb it seems dumb because it's self talk mm-hmm. it's saying to yourself at the end of the day John god damn it maybe you screwed up a little bit today but you yeah. put in 3 hours god bless you you know yeah that counts. Tomorrow's okay. going to be a better day. Give yourself a gold star. You know, you did it. And I think I'm not a great believer in talent, although talent, it, it does exist, you know, mm-hmm. but I think it's more work is more important. And anything you can do to keep yourself working, and keep yourself fresh is, is really, a, they don't teach you this skill. You know, you don't get this at the writer's workshop or whatever it is, but you got, you got to have it. Otherwise the, somebody that has this is going to succeed. And if you don't have it, you're not going to succeed. Simple as that.
0: And it can be learned and it can be practiced and it it can be added on. Yeah. You can learn it. There's been seasons where I didn't have it, but one, so one of my self-reinforcement, I would call it a soundtrack. That's this phrase I wrote a book about, about kind of mindset. Yeah, right, soundtrack, yeah. Yeah, one of my soundtracks is three pages is plenty. Cause resistance will tell me, today you should be able to finish this whole book. Today in this session, your goal is to finish the entire book. And I'll go, that's impossible. (laughs) Like that is, I will fail today and every day going forward. If the goal is to write a whole book in this day, but three pages is plenty. So every time resistance goes, you didn't do a whole book today, kind of a big failure. I go three <laughs> is plenty, three pages is plenty. Like, let's go. Are yeah. there other self-reinforcement things you do? Um, the cannon that fires inspiration at you is is one of them. Are there other things that you kind of in the the press field kind of kit or toolbox you have for self-reinforcement? <sighs>
1: Well, I just, I have a lot of little superstitions, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, they're just dumb little superstitions. And one of them is this canon that I have, that I have here. I don't know if you guys can see it. And I pointed it at myself every morning to fire inspiration into me. But, you know, another great way of self-reinforcing is journaling. I, I'm not a journaler myself, but I know like Ryan Holiday is a great, you know, recommends oh, yeah. that. And, and another friend of mine, Joe Byerly, who's a podcaster of the, the Green Notebook, if you've ever heard of that. He's a great believer in in the morning and at the end of the day, and I guess this was a stoic practice too, you know, back in Marcus Aurelius's day, sure. of writing down, you know, what you did today. And when you've done that, you know, you got to say to yourself, you know, it's pretty goddamn good. Three pages is damn good. You know, <laughs> yeah. three pages yeah. today is 900 pages by the end of the year. And there's nothing exactly. wrong with that.
0: Exactly. And for me, that was, I learned it takes me about 500 to 700 hours to feel good about a book, to write a book. And so I have a wall chart where I'm tracking and it's a bar graph. And because what will happen now with going forward is, I know in the first 100 hours, I think I have it five times and I don't. I go, now I got the book and then the whole thing changes. But now when that happens, I don't feel like a failure. I go, no, I'm right on track. Like I look at my chart, 100 hours in, you don't know what you're doing. 200 hours in, you're barely getting 300. And that becomes like a gingerbread trail back to safety for me to go, oh, I've already, Uh I've done that. Like this is, so little things Uh like that. That's great, John. Now
1: that is the definition of self-reinforcement. That's a great you know, a little trick that you have, you know, and, uh, that's, that's just the way it should be. i I, for an athlete. It's the same thing. Like if you're in the off season and you've allowed allowed yourself to gain 10 pounds or something, you know, Hey, I can't get into, into game shape in one week. It's going to be a process, you know, and then you don't beat yourself up. Self reinforcement. You keep going. And that's, that's the difference between a pro and an amateur.
0: Well, and I, yeah, you you learn it over time. Oh, yeah. And you it takes time and you build it up. I mean, my first book, I didn't have a wall chart. I didn't know what I like. I didn't know how to do it. And so now I'm book nine and 10. I'm going, OK, there's a process and I'll give I'll give myself into the process and I'll, I'll I'll work three hours at a time or two hours at a time and I'll watch it stack up over time. But to the athlete point, my brother lives in Tampa and he sent uh he sent me a photo one day of Tom Brady and his trainer alone in a little athletic field like where kids play Little League in pads, practicing throws. And it was the off season. Nobody else was there. 99% of athletes are not doing that. And you go, why is Tom Brady, Tom Brady? Because it's not that you don't look (laughs) at him and go, he's ripped. He is so like, he is seven feet tall and he's a perfect physical specimen. You go, he's alone by himself in a park wearing full pads, throwing footballs to his trainer for four hours on a random Tuesday. And nobody sees that. Um, it's those little self reinforcement things.
1: Yeah, that is so great. I wish somebody would do a documentary about somebody like that, you know, and because I would love to be there and, and see what did his trainer, what, what, what were they working on? You know, yeah. what did they say to each other? When Tom went home, what did he do? A massage? Did he get an ice bath? Yeah. What? You know, I think about the the great story about Kurt Warner, the quarterback of of the of the St. Louis Rams. You know, mm-hmm. that was bagging groceries right out of the game, yep. and and you know he did the exact same thing. You know, he was down at the at the field with some, you know, the local college with receivers yeah. running routes yeah. and him throwing. You know, and uh, I would love to. That's again, that's the difference between an amateur and a pro. Those those moments when nobody's looking. And and you're doing your thing.
0: And I think those moments exist in every endeavor. So for writing, you'd say, yeah. it's writing, it's reading great books, it's editing, it's taking notes. When, you know, I carry a notebook. I've had 1,004 um, ideas this year. And I know that because I keep them numerically. <laughs> I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in idea bankruptcy. If you can't sit down to write, you haven't been curating ideas. And so I never sit down alone. I always bring friends and the new ones show up. But when I got serious about ideas, books started to happen. It wasn't that I, you know, waited for inspiration. Um, So I think anything can do that. Now, my favorite part of the book, and there's so many parts that I love, but the one that I thought the whole book is worth the price of, like the whole price is worth just this chapter is chapter 66. And it was about self-promotion. So you you said in in this section that your own weakness forever has been promoting myself and my books. I've been great at putting you know the writing part. I've been crushing, but I've dropped the ball in marketing and self promotion. And and then you said, I love this. These days, alas, there is no choice. For a writer, it's about fidelity to the book and especially to the characters. You have to be their champion. They can't do it themselves. You have to be the one to help them have their day in the sun. And that is true of any dream, of any endeavor, of anything. So for you, what was that moment where you said, okay, I'm going to do more self-promotion. I haven't done it to the way I want to do it. I'm going to jump into something because I've every writer I know doesn't love self-promotion. Very few people I know are like, "I just love doing Instagram reels. Like <laughs> I hate Instagram reels. I hate them, but it's part of selling a book. What happened to change your mind on that?
1: Ah, it's a great question, John. let's see if I can find this thing here. Uh, anyway, this is a book behind me here called thirty six righteous men." this uh, this came out um, maybe four years ago. And I'm not kidding, it sold maybe 200 copies. It sank without a trace. And I've had other books (laughs) sink without a trace, but that one was really, really depressing to me. So the next book after that is this one here. Mm -hmm. And I just said to myself, and actually Ryan Holiday was instrumental in this, our mutual friend. I said, I gotta do something. I just gotta figure out how to do something. And actually I went to Austin Ryan was kind enough to, you know, spend a day with me. And he just sort of taught me what he does, you know, how to do it. And basically, you know, uh, he's a great book uh, believer. In fact, I quote him in, in the book where he yeah. says, uh, you and you alone have to market your book. You uh, you have to, nobody else can do it for you. And it's so true. So this, this I'm going to show you a little screen here in my, these are not uh, yeah. actually the, podcasts and stuff that I did, but it's, it was on that screen. And, um, I was out of my comfort zone, but I just had to do it. And like, like you, like you said, John, I felt a loyalty to my characters, you know, they're on the page. They can't stand up for themselves. Somebody's got to be their champion. And so I just kind of forced myself to do it. And I realized, I think now going forward, I figure for every hour you spend writing, you got to spend an hour promoting one way or another. It's too bad. I wish we didn't have to do it, but sure. you have to do it.
0: Uh, that is, I told my agents today, I was talking to my literary agents about a, a book thing we're working on. And I said, you need to have every one of your authors you represent read chapter 66, because I think ah. that I've never heard it expressed that way of they can't fight for themselves. And again, it's true if you're opening a gym in your town, if you make the best blueberry pies and you want to sell them you know, somewhere, like it doesn't matter the thing. The thing can't fight for itself. You're the one that has to fight for it. And it's challenging. And it that to me was such a kick in the butt. On There's some things I do okay on self-promotion, but there's a lot that I go, again, reels, Instagram reels. I keep having friends go, you got to get on more videos. You got to do more videos. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to. I, can I just write a long-form copy? Will, will blogs please come back? Long-form, like, as people's attention spans get shorter, can they just read 2,000-word-long blog posts I do? And they're like, that's not happening. That's not, like, no, you want to sell happening. your yeah. book? Um, so, so that's one of the things that I'll, you've I'll, leaned I, into. I, got a,
1: I have a suggestion. I have a suggestion for anybody that's, that's watching and are thinking about this. Uh, write down the name of this writer, Jack Carr. Um, oh yeah, terminalist. His stuff, the terminalist in the blood. Yep. Lots of things like this. Yep. Go to Jack Carr's website and study what he does. He does everything. He's sponsored by. He has a podcast. He's got, he's got a book club. He's got. He really is the supreme, you know, promoter in a good way. You know of getting out there and it is working for him.
0: Yeah. You, I mean the net, the net or no, Amazon prime, that show is number one. His, his stuff is just killing right now. Terminal
1: list. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's, he's everywhere. It just was, it was really encouraging too, to see you say, Hey, this was in my comfort zone and I had to step out of it. So that particular moment, was 36 Righteous Men. You were unhappy with the result. You said, I'm going to keep writing books. I want a different result. I better do a different thing. I better go connect with Ryan Holiday. I better go down to Austin. I better make a chart of podcasts. I feel like there's two ways people change. They either change via a crisis. So something like that happens. You want the book to do better. Or they change via a voluntary decision. They say, you know what? No longer... What, what ways do you mm. see people change? Like in, in your experience of you've talked about resistance for decades and seen people get on the edge of change, but then not change, but then also make some changes that are substantial. What do you think causes some people to change?
1: In In my experience, John, it's, it usually comes from a crisis, you know? Um, because when we talk about change, like a, the classic example to me is somebody that's, that's an alcoholic or somebody that has a, an addiction problem. And they and they change. They stop, right? They stop drinking. They stop doing drugs or whatever it is. And almost always, it's a crisis, right? They wake up face down in the gutter, you know, at four in the morning, and they say to themselves, you know, I do have a problem. You know, I yeah. better get it together. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose everything, right? So it does seem, certainly in my own life, it's always been a crisis. It's very hard, I think, to just make a decision and stick with it. I don't know why that's true. It's like you need to be scared straight. You know, it's like you need to be arrested, thrown in jail. And you're looking through the bars and you say, oh man, I better change my life. This, this is not working for me, whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Jail seems not like 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 it's very fun. Major kick in the ass to get you to change. It's so hard to change. Yeah. Well,
0: and I think too, it can help to see somebody else that you love go through something you'd like to avoid. So I think there's different levels of crisis, different levels of pain. I'd like to avoid the pain that person experienced in my own life. So I'm going to make, I see kids make those decisions different than their parents all the time where they go, oh, that's not, this ends with me, with my generation. I'm going to make, I'm going to make different, different decisions. Um, Speaking of, of kind of. Interrupt you just for a second.
1: Yeah, John. Just to interrupt for a second. I would be really curious to know how Tom Brady felt when he was drafted number one ninety nine, oh, and six yeah. other quarterbacks got picked yeah. ahead of him. Yeah, because I'll bet that that was a crisis in it for him. I, oh, I've never yeah. heard him talk about that, but yeah, I would. Bet oh, I know he, he, said, he know
0: the, he knew those teams' names without a doubt.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And he, I'm sure, he said, "Whatever I'm doing, I got to dial it up a lot more."
0: Yeah, that that became some of his fuel. Speaking of pushing through and kind of grinding it out, um, you tell a great story about being part of a Steven Seagal movie. That's that's part of what I love too. Is that you've got this really fascinating background. There's fiction. There's nonfiction. There's there's been a long Hollywood career. You tell this story about a Steven Seagal movie which of course it's about a Steven Seagal movie and they're trying to get more money for it to make the cart chase look even better. And I don't know if it was the producer that said this or whoever was making the movie, they taught you an idea that you took forward in your writing career. Can you share that story from the new book?
1: Uh, this, the short version of it was, it was a meeting at, uh, Warner brothers. I hope Steven Seagal will be mad at me when I, he doesn't ago. listen to this uh, podcast.
0: I have that on fact. I know uh, he's not a listener.
1: And, um, you know, it was a B movie. It was a low budget movie. And, um, the director was a guy named Bruce Malmoth, who was a wonderful guy. And there was a car chase in the, in the thing. And Bruce was lying asleep, lying awake at night. And he thought of a, a great way to really juice up this car chase, but he needed more money from the studio and he needed an extra day of shooting. So in this meeting, he made his case to the studio executive, the guy who held the purse strings and the studio executive let him finish. You know, and then he said to him, he said, Bruce, think of this movie as a sausage. It's just another link and you're grinding it out, you know? And yeah. as, as, and everybody laughed, everybody around the table laughed. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, he's right. This movie is a sausage. You know, it's just another link and we're grinding to get out. But I Mm -hmm. also thought there's no reason why I working on it as a writer, why Mm -hmm. I can't make this the best freaking sausage that I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I am grateful as hell to be here in this room working on this sausage, you know? So I think in other words, not every job that we get or every book that we work on or is gone with the wind. sometimes yeah. you know you're writing on a a trade ad for preparation h but there's no yeah, reason yeah. why you can't you know give it your all and do the best you can and you have to
0: yeah i for me it remind i and i did write uh i wrote um ads for um like laser hair removal, radio jingles. Um, That's when I, Uh I, before I wrote my first book, I was trying to, I was doing everything I could to get writing money. And I was, they were ads for like tire replacement companies. And I don't, what do I know about laser hair removal? Like I know if you got to really push bathing suit season, that's the real, that's the real kicker if you're trying to write a good jingle. But I remember there's been times where I would say to myself, sometimes you're the person that's carrying the chicken and it's somebody else's wedding. Like, you're not the star of that scene. Like, you're going to carry the chicken, (laughs) but you better be the best at carrying that chicken. You don't drop that chicken, but, like, you're not wearing the dress. Like, somebody else at this thing, you just, you know, but you still want yours to be done with excellence, but, like, you're just the dude bringing a plate of chicken. And no one at the (laughs) wedding is like, do you see that guy carry that chicken? It was phenomenal the way he held that plate. He was such a good chicken carrier. But I know that I, like, I always tell people that say, I have a day job. I want a dream job. Like don't have to do your day job. You can't practice mediocrity 40 hours a week and think you'll be an amazing yeah. writer on the weekend. You've just taught yourself uh, to be lazy great, for 40 hours. Media. Yeah. yeah. Don't practice mediocrity yeah. for 40 hours a week and think you'll become a, you will write a great fiction novel on the weekend. No, you won't. Yeah, Like you need to yeah. do both with as much excellence as you can so that you're, so that you're practicing. Um, so what are you working on next? What's the next? You're, you're working on a follow-up to a man-at-arms? Is that is that right?
1: That's right, yeah. And uh, okay. I've got a few other things that are like done and just waiting yep. to be, you know, to find their uh, proper launch pad.
0: What's your favorite part of the process? Is your favorite part the beginning where you're rolling around in the ideas and you're, the fog is starting to clear a little bit? Is it when people – it's out on its own. It's been launched and you get to see reactions. Where do you really kind of feel like you plug into full press field?
1: It's, it's not when it's out on its own, that that's for sure. Yeah, It's not yeah. the moment of, you know, the movie opens or the book is published. I find that's always anticlimactic. And in yeah. fact, I think it's, it's a very dangerous place for a writer, you know, because at that point, When a book is, when book six is done or movie number four is done, you better be deep in book number seven already or you're in trouble, you know? So for, but for me, I think there's a point when you've been working on a story long enough that you're really into it, you know? And I I find a lot, like right now, the story that I'm working on, this follow-up to A Man at Arms I have a lot of distractions going on. I'm doing, you know, podcasts, I'm doing other stuff sure. like that. I can't really get like a full 4-hour work day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know. So yeah. I'm doing the best I can, like carrying that chicken the best I can. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully there will be a point where I'll I'll have two or three months where I can really focus. And that's that's the most fun for me when you can really Talk about the underground river, you know, when you're you're in the river and the river's in you. That's when yeah. it's the most fun. When the stuff is coming from another dimension and you're you're letting it go through you. You've got that's the, most fun for me.
0: You've got the catcher's mitt. And that catcher's mitt's, you're hitting that thwap Yeah, yeah. Lunch. You're catching, you're catching a, yeah. a lot. Is it easier for you to write in the summer or the winter, or is it the same? Like, do you have a season where you're like, So for me, like winter, like, and I think it's because it's desolate. I'm alone with my thoughts. Like summer's distracting and the pool and it feels like vacation. But is there a season where it's easier for you to create?
1: That's a great question, John. And I would agree with you completely. Winter is definitely better. There's some Because, you know, when you're working, you know, we live up here. Yeah. So if uh, it doesn't matter to me if the trees are bare and it's cold outside, as long as it's, you know, warm enough inside that I'm – and and you're right the distractions go away and you can really buckle down and work
0: yeah, that that's always that's always been my experience. So okay, only two last questions. I could talk to you about writing stuff forever because it's, <laughs> it's super fun, it's super encouraging to me. Um, what would you put on your Mount Rushmore of nonfiction books? Or even fiction? Answer the question however you feel most comfortable. But if you said, man, other than books you've written, because I, I I add yours to to the mine on uh Mount Rushmore all the time, what are the four that you'd say, Oh, I think people should read these books? These are really helpful or encouraging or engaging? What, what's on your Mount Rushmore?
1: Ah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, let me, let me just say for fiction. Sure. Um, I would say, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Sun Also Rises. Oh, uh, great and one. The reason I say that is the, uh, the style is just so great, you know, that it, it's, it's, when he describes something, you're just right there in it, you know? I mean, I've literally studied that, um, you know, typed it out word for word. Another great book is The Movie Goer by Walker Percy. Have,
0: have you heard of that one, John? I haven't read that one, no. I haven't even heard that one.
1: Ah, it's like the, it won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1963. And uh, it's just a wonderful, great novel. It's, it's kind of like Hemingway, but f- funnier. You know, ah. with, a, with a really wry, funny edge to it. You know, um, another book, any book that I, by Henry Miller, I love. But I would say Tropic of Capricorn, probably the best one of those. Um, and then I'm going to name another one that's not really fiction at all and is incredibly difficult to read. Uh, it's a book <laughs> from the ancient world, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. Um, I don't know if you've ever read that, John. Now, I've, it's a, it's a I was like,
0: do I pretend, do I pretend right now? And I was like, I'm not even going to pretend. No, me, nobody
1: realized. else has, has read it either, yeah. but this is a book, you know, the, the ancient Greeks were such clear thinkers and such mm-hmm. clear writers, you know, that, uh, and, and this one by Thucydides, who was like, you know, talk about Mount Rushmore. He is Mount Rushmore. Um, and he describes this war And the that happened, and it's it's really you know it's just you read it, and I don't care how good you think you are, you go away from that book thinking I am not fit to bite the ankles of this guy, you know. And so so it's very encouraging.
0: Okay, yeah, those are my those are those are great. And I I wanted to jump back for a second when you described it's anticlimactic when the book comes out. I remember when my first book came out, driving down the highway, four hundred north and outside of Atlanta, looking at other cars and thinking they have no idea what happened today. Like I thought when the book <laughs> came out that the crust of the earth would shake and that like it would be. And I was, I worked for Auto Trader. I was a senior content designer. I was writing instructional copy to fill out like a credit card loan when you wanted to buy a car. And I remember driving uh-huh. home and looking all around, going. Look at all these cars that have no idea, none of them. And it is that moment where you can either get stuck in that moment or you can just, again, write the second book, work on the, work on the third book. Have you ever gotten stuck between books where you took too much time off and writing got hard?
1: Um, only in the very beginning of my quote unquote career when I really didn't have a career, you know, yeah. but once I actually started working, I, uh, I, I, I had enough experience to know you can't stop. It's like Seth Godin calls it the dip. And oh, yeah. You know, yeah. you fall into that dip and, and it's yeah. really hard to get out. You know, it's like yeah. at the, you know who Jack LaLanne is, the fitness yeah, guy. Yeah, the
0: fitness guy. He could do a million One push-ups. Original
1: fit- yeah. yeah. And uh, he had a saying that uh, it's okay to skip a day of training at the gym, but on that day you're not allowed to eat. Oh, that's so. That's so good. That's so Jack so Lalanne. If you, you know, if you finish a book or something, and you say, "Okay, I'm taking three months off," then that's you're not allowed to eat for those three months. You know, so yeah,
0: yeah. I d- I did that and once, he, and it was a disaster. Jack Lalanne
1: was smart because he knew how hard it was to get back into it.
0: Yeah, once you've got momentum and motion, like, and you've got the engine is going, like, I again, I took. I took way too much time between two books once, and it was terrible. It was so, every day it got harder. That's the funny thing about resistance. Resistance will go, you can take a day off, it's not a big deal, and then the next day, it's twice as hard, and the day and it's like compound interest. Like, resistance works on yeah. compound interest, and gosh, it, that kicked my butt yeah. for like two years.
1: Although, here, here's my trick for that, John, for whatever this is worth, because mm-hmm. I do think you gotta take breaks every once in a while. You can't sure. just be relentless. But I think, like, if I if I finish a book and I immediately start the next book, mm. if I've got what I would call a beachhead into that next book, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. I get like a month going and I feel like, ah, I've got momentum. I know what the story's mm-hmm. about. Then I'll take, you know, two or three weeks off, you know, yeah. and I'll really yeah. take them off. I won't think about anything. Yeah. But I, it's because I've, I've got the beachhead and I know I can go back and and pick it up.
0: And that's, you want, so during ideas. that two to three, during that two to three weeks, you're not writing down ideas. Like if an idea comes no, up, I mean, not, I might
1: write down ideas, but I won't work okay. on
0: that book. You know, gotcha. I'll sort of keep, you know, keep my phone on and ready, you know, yeah. keep that the antenna's up, going. the antenna's up, you're yeah. tuning into the, but you're not sitting down at the desk. The cannon's not firing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. That's and of course, good. that time
1: is when you get a lot of good ideas. You know, yeah, you get the best ideas. And, and you're
0: ready to go. <laughs> yeah. You can't wait to get back yeah. to the keyboard. I, I love that. Okay. Yeah. Last question. Speaking of self-promotion, where can people find out more about you, the latest book, the you know, your website, your social? Like, where can people go find out more about Stephen Pressfield? Um, well, uh let's see.
1: I, I've got a website. It's just my name, dot mm-hmm. This is the new book. Put your ass where your heart wants to be. It's on Amazon and Everywhere. And I'm on Instagram. That's probably the main place to see me. I'm doing those reels. I'm doing those Yeah, videos. see, everybody has to do uh,
0: reels. It's terrible, but it's good. You got to do gotta it. Got to them. do them. Got to do them. Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. That's so fun. Well, but, Steve, yeah. this has been a blast. It's been fun to, to finally connect um, via video, via conversation. Again, the notes on my wall right now, so encouraging. Um, uh, I, I emailed you about that just the other day. Uh, how much that's meant to me and it laid a, a track in me to do that for other people um, and so I've, uh, I'm well, grateful for that I'll
1: say it again John you're a born writer whatever you're doing keep I doing it you know?
0: I appreciate th- that thanks for having me yeah on the anytime podcast. thank you so much Steve thank you so much for listening to my interview today with Steven Pressfield I hope you had as much fun as I did I hope that you could tell during the interview that I was like what this is fantastic because that's how I felt Again, I love his books. I encourage you all to go get as many of his books as you can. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. The reviews you write are super helpful. They're super encouraging. And they give me a sense of, oh, okay, I should do more of this or oh, I should try this. So the feedback is really valuable. Thank you for writing them. Please make sure that you follow or subscribe or whatever the kids are saying these days. And please write a review. I'll see you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. And don't forget, you can pre-order a copy of your new playlist anywhere books are sold, or you could read the first two chapters for free at acuff.me playlist. That's acuf fm playlist. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.